Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. A team of researchers traveling by snowcat slowly traverses a slope on the east flank of California's White Mountain. Their goal? To replace an antenna at the 14,246-foot summit. Located at about the center of California, near the border with Nevada, the summit of White Mountain is perched at the western edge of the Great Basin and offers a commanding view. To the west rise the Sierra Nevadas, literally snowy mountains as the Anza Expedition of 1775 called them. As far as the eye can see, only two peaks are taller. One of them, Mount Whitney, the highest point in the lower 48 United States. Stretching between the Sierras and White Peak is the Owens Valley, a rift forming near the edge of the North American plate Sometimes called the deepest valley, its floor lies over 10,000 feet below them, over twice as deep as the Grand Canyon. To the east, the vista spans the Great Basin, where one can often peer across the entire state of Nevada, and on a clear day, distant peaks in Utah float upon the horizon. But not today for fierce winds lash the team. Winds here routinely exceed 150 miles per hour, and they must work quickly as a storm bears down on the summit. Whipped by the wind, they replace the antenna. Inside the Spartan Summit facility, they check the transceiver. So we've got two antennas up here, one that goes down to our base station in Bishop, the Owens Valley Laboratory, and the other that goes to the Barcroft Laboratory so I'm checking now, and we've got plenty of signal. The signal is strong. The link from the summit to the valley floor is reestablished. Let's check the weather while we're up here, see what we're up against. Despite their isolation, the team now has instant access to the storm's progress. Soon, it will be upon them. It is time to return to base. Fortunately, their job is done. They have succeeded in re-establishing the highest internet node in North America. Extending science into this realm of extremes so we can understand the tales this land can tell. the realm of the bristlecone pine. A survivor from the Pleistocene, 
the great ice age that dominated the Earth for nearly two million years. They flourished when saber-tooth and mammoth roamed this land, and the first fragments of human societies emerged. Near here, its location kept secret for protection, is a bristle cone that was hundreds of years old when the Great Pyramids were built. It has seen empires fall and species vanish into time. And it is surrounded by others that rival its age. As far as we know, these grizzled Methuselahs are the oldest living organisms on Earth. Yet, looking around, it's a wonder that anything survives here. At this altitude, the air is thin, containing only about 60% of the life-sustaining gases that are present at sea level. For every organism, this means stress. For animals, there is less oxygen. For plants, there is less carbon dioxide. Temperatures tend to extremes, with frigid nights even in the dog days of summer, and dry Antarctic-like conditions through the winter. Water is hard won here. These mountains receive less than 15 inches of total moisture all year, as snow or in sparse rainfall that evaporates quickly in the thin, dry atmosphere. This entire mountain environment is shaped by these extremes. Little air, little water, freezing cold and scorching heat. Despite this, life succeeds, even thrives in this environment, prevailing for millennia like the bristlecone, or bursting forth in a seasonal frolic like the marmots and other animals that live here. What can these mountains tell us about life, ourselves, and perhaps our future? And how do we come to understand these things? One way is to understand life in this environment by observing those who live here and those who experience its extremes. That was the dream of some eager University of California postdoctoral and graduate students, fresh from their service in World War II. Led by Nello Pace, a young Berkeley assistant professor, this group of physiologists and doctors-to-be had a vision for a modern laboratory to study human responses to this harsh, high-altitude environment. Their vision? Establishing a laboratory at the foot of the mountains in the Owens Valley would provide the perfect base camp. At only 4,000 feet in altitude, there would be no significant effects on human performance. The Navy already had a rustic laboratory in the White Mountains at Crooked Creek at 10,150 feet. This provided basic shelter for Pace and his crew to do their first high-altitude studies and they would continue to expand the facilities there. 
But their main goal was to build a completely new facility that would allow them to do the same experiments that were possible in a modern research laboratory on a university campus. A site was identified on the east flank of Mount Barcroft at 12,450 feet. There, this small, hardy group lived in Spartan quarters and worked 24-hour shifts in the thin air to erect an undistinguished Quonset building to house researchers and laboratories. Their vision became reality. Thus were planted the seeds of the University of California's White Mountain Research Station. The facilities at Barcroft were soon followed by the Summit Laboratory at 14,246 feet, still the highest laboratory in North America. The station now provided two facilities where researchers could bring subjects to altitude for extended periods. In the beginning, these first researchers were drawn to the station by the desire to understand physiological responses to hypoxia, the condition in which the body doesn't get enough oxygen. Because at the station's high laboratories, there is less air to breathe. Hypoxia is the cause of altitude sickness, which can be merely uncomfortable, or in extreme cases, lead to deadly complications, like high-altitude pulmonary edema, in which the lungs fill with fluid, or high-altitude cerebral edema, in which fluid exerts pressure on the brain. One of the first studies at the Summit Laboratory was designed to investigate how the body adjusts to hypoxia. Subjects were required to spend 20 days restricted to the very top of the mountain, with only the rustic stone quarters of the laboratory and less than half an acre of bare rock as their home during the study. Similar studies are still conducted using the unique facilities of the Summit Laboratory and continue to make significant contributions to physiology, particularly in the study of heart and lung diseases that diminish the body's capacity to get enough oxygen. Over the years, the station has become well known for these contributions to physiology, but they now involve myriad and sometimes surprising subjects. Consider the horse. At the center of the sport of kings, the horse is legendary throughout history for its beauty, strength, and spirit. It is an animal bred for speed, and thus the horse is one of the most highly adapted animals for aerobic performance. With this finely tuned adaptation, one would assume that horses would easily endure the effects of altitude. But legend holds that the mule hybrid offspring of horse and donkey has earned that distinction. But is it true? That's the question that comparative physiologist and veterinarian Steve Wickler set out to answer. I looked into the scientific literature and uh, why are mules better at altitude? And there's really nothing, the very, very few scientific papers. Uh, a lot of this information is, is all anecdotal, but time-tested. I mean, it's hard for, for me as a physiologist to argue with a lot of that. And really what I'm doing is uh, putting some numbers to some of this. The only way to address this question directly 
is to take both horses and mules to altitude, and Barcroft is the ideal place to take them. Barcroft plays a key role in the study because, one, it's accessible. We can bring the animals up easily. And two, it's at a high altitude. It's 12,500 feet. It's well-equipped. Uh, we have facilities to, to do the studies. It makes things very easy. So what we end up doing is uh, making a number of measurements. So one of our measurements is uh, rest. Another measurement, exercise. And the components that we're looking at, uh, changes in hematological blood parameters. Do red cells go up? Do they go up the same in horses and mules? How about the stress? How about the stress of this exposure to altitude? So one of our measurements is a hormone cortisol, which is a measurement of stress. We're looking at fluid shifts. One of the changes that uh, happens in humans is changes in, in fluid compartments in, in the body. And that's, in fact, one of, the, one of the pathologies associated with high-altitude pulmonary edema. Well, nobody's looked at it in horses, certainly no one's looked at it in mules. So we have uh, students that are looking at that. We had one student that's interested in the changes in the pressures in the pulmonary arteries, the, the blood vessels going to the, to the lungs. And this is all benched in the framework of uh, what happens at rest and what happens at exercise. So we, we test the animals, we sample them uh, in the morning right after they've been fed, and then we have a standard exercise test. The standard exercise test, or bout, was conducted when the animals first arrived at altitude and again two weeks later. Prior to the bout, student assistants gathered baseline data and prepared heart rate recorders for each animal. Good job, Rose. 45. As in the first bout, horses and mules rode side by side during the test. Wranglers slowly ponied the teams down the hill to the starting point, where Steve would make final checks of their monitors and prepare them for the test. Then he would start the bout. Go, mules! <laughs> we started at the bottom of the hill. Okay, let's follow them up. And the animals were trotted. We trotted them at a realistic speed, almost seven miles per hour. So it's a very light trot. The entire bout, it's 1.25 miles, was about an 11-minute adventure. And at the end of that, the animals were stopped. We sampled the blood. And the idea is to get a quantitative assessment using uh, blood variables and heart rate variables on the relative stress of that exercise bout. We can compare that because we, had, we standardized the workload down below and tried to replicate it up here. So we'll have a low and high altitude comparison. And I think more importantly, we have horses and mules that are doing the exact same exercise bout, both at low altitude and high altitude, and it'll allow us to make a nice, clean comparison between horses and mules. Back at the Cal Poly Pomona Equine Center, the results were analyzed. What did the numbers reveal? Most all of the parameters we measured indicated absolutely no differences between the animals. We did find that mules may have a higher capacity to deliver oxygen to the muscles, and that may impact their performance. But it didn't play out in our exercise test. 
So that still leaves us with a question, you know, are mules better? Maybe it's a, a longer term event. Maybe if the animals are up there for a longer period of time. And I think that's an excellent reason to revisit Barcroft. Whether observing horses or humans, studying the effects of a low oxygen environment remains a mainstay of the activities here. But the station has since evolved to serve the needs of all fields of science. Today, White Mountain Research Station provides facilities for all kinds of science. So we don't just have the physiology going on like in the early years, but we have astrophysics, ecology, geology, basically every kind of science. And we have researchers from around the world coming to use these facilities. Of course, high altitude is still an important part of White Mountain Research Station. It's been important for my research as a physiologist, just as it was important for the physiologists who started the place. But it's not just the high altitude, it's the fact that we have a range of altitudes from 4,000 feet down in the Owens Valley to over 14,000 feet here on the summit of White Mountain. It's this range of altitudes that makes us absolutely unique. Not only can you observe physiology at all of these altitudes, but you can observe differences in the environment at all of these altitudes. In fact, the environments represented here are the same as you would find going from the Southern California deserts to the Arctic. At the base of the White Mountains, amidst desert scrub at 4,000 feet, is the station's operations center, the Owens Valley Laboratory. Nearby, a fertile river habitat surrounds the Owens River as it journeys south to slake the thirst of California's millions. Here, the White Mountains start their steep rise. At around 7,000 feet is a dry montane environment. A thick forest of pinon pine dominates, providing rich habitat. Further up, at around 9,000 feet, a demarcation becomes obvious, where the pinon forest fades away. And then, near 10,000 feet, the bristle cones make their first appearance, along with limber pines, the only trees able to survive above this altitude. The land here is still relatively verdant, and in early summer can present a colorful palette. Just above 10,000 feet, a sagebrush steppe dominates, blanketing the rounded peaks and rolling hills. Near here, at 10,150 feet, the station's Crooked Creek facility is found beside a rich forest of bristlecone and limber pines. Above Crooked Creek, plant life continues to shrink in stature as the altitude increases. Bristlecone pines stand starkly against the arid hillsides, towering over low shrubs. At about 11,500 feet, even the bristle cones disappear. This is treeline. Above here, at the highest reaches, are Barcroft and the Summit Laboratories. But not a single tree. This is the realm of alpine tundra, a seemingly barren landscape of stunted, ground-hugging plant life and desolate talus slopes. Withering patches of snow and dry plains.
Because of this range of environments, White Mountain has many stories to tell. Stories about change and the past, evolution, and what may be to come. Just below the summit, ecologist John Smiley, associate director of the station, and Frank Powell, the director, conduct a preliminary survey for a new environmental observatory designed to help us understand climate change. For a variety of reasons, environments such as this one are very sensitive to climate change. In alpine environments all over the world, species and habitats are disappearing. And science not only hopes to understand the effects of climate change, but to assess the risks as well. This site is going to become part of a global monitoring network known as the Gloria Project. The Gloria Project is a worldwide effort to understand the effects of climate change on vegetation communities and alpine environments. It's not only the plant communities that we're concerned with. Global climate models have predicted that high elevation environments such as this one will experience global warming more rapidly and more intensely than at lower elevation. And for this reason, we can consider this an early warning system for the whole planet. The station not only provides ideal high-altitude environments for the Gloria project, advanced technologies at the station, like the Geographical Information Systems, or GIS laboratory, will enhance the project. What GIS allows us to do is see how environmental variables relate in different places. So, for example, you can have a map of rainfall, a map of plant diversity, and put all these together in the GIS system and understand how they affect each other and how things like global climate change may affect the relationship between them. To understand this global change, GIS helps us look at the past. To do this, geologist Angela Jaco takes field observations into the GIS system and reconstructs the history of ancient lakes once found here. On this map, we see a variety of shoreline that are color-coded. The edge of the green is the shoreline from the Third Ice Age back, about 150,000 years ago. And then in the other colors, we see the shoreline associated with the lake from the last ice age, the highest elevation shoreline formed a lake about 600 feet deep, and that occurred about 24, 22,000 years ago. And then by 10 to 11,000 years ago, the lake had receded and dropped from about 600 feet deep to about 100 feet deep. Arid flats and dwindling saline remnants now exist where GIS reveals that deep lakes once lapped at tree-lined shores. A drastic change from the scorching plains and acrid sinks of today. Dramatic changes that seem to have ceased long ago. Or have they? GIS will help continue this story into the future. We've used this information over time to look at the climate history of the, of the world, literally. And 
we're very interested to know what is a natural variation in climate and water levels and precipitation as opposed to the kind of changes we're seeing in the present day that we think is related to human impact on the atmosphere and the oceans. While telling us about changes in our world, the extreme environments in the White Mountains can also tell us much about life. For even here, where clouds scratch the earth and winters are long and harsh, this severe, seemingly lifeless, often frozen world can explode with abundance. and even flourish with its own special beauty. That is because life here has endured, evolving adaptations to survive in this place. One of those adaptations is hibernation, and it is here that research hopes to reveal how the environment has influenced its evolution by studying one of this land's most prolific and endearing creatures the golden-mantled ground squirrel. I study the golden-mantled ground squirrel because um, this is a particularly good species to work with if you're interested in studying hibernation. If you're interested in studying um, constraints on a, a particular process, such as hibernation, it would make sense to look for those constraints first where that process is most pronounced. And hibernation is certainly pronounced at Barcroft. Because of the altitude, because of the length of the winter, because of the low temperatures of that area you know, on a year-round basis, the hibernation period can be slightly more than eight months at this altitude. And that's probably the longest hibernation period that's been described for just about any species. The advantages of hibernation are clear. By dropping their body temperature to near freezing and slowing their heart rate and breathing to a few times a minute, Hibernation enables the squirrels to conserve energy and survive the winter on the food they have stored as fat. But what could be the factors that cause such a dramatic physiological change? A change that makes these energetic little creatures lie in a death-like state for months at a time. And what are the reasons, or what biologists call constraints, that caused the evolution of hibernation? Craig thinks he may have an answer. Diet. The research conducted some time ago by both myself and some of my colleagues have demonstrated that one thing that seems to be very important prior to the onset of hibernation is the nutritional composition of the diet on which they're feeding while they're fattening. And in particular, it seems that there's a certain range of polyunsaturated fatty acid contents that have to be prevalent in the diet during feeding uh, for hibernation to have the most energetic savings associated with it. For animals that feed on diets that have either fewer polyunsaturated fatty acids or more polyunsaturated fatty acids in this particular range, the cost in terms of energetics associated with hibernation is much higher. And so what I'm doing is trying to test the hypothesis that perhaps one of the things that's constrained the evolution of hibernation is this need for, for a diet of a particular polyunsaturated fatty acid content. In the field at Barcroft, he tests this hypothesis by monitoring individual squirrels throughout the year. 
what we do is we place uh, temperature-sensitive radio collars on the animals in the fall. And we also collect information on the fatty acid composition of the diets of these animals. And we follow the same population for three consecutive years, and we're going to then see if we can find a relationship between dietary fatty acid composition and probability of survival. While the squirrels fatten on the alpine tundra around Barcroft, telltale radio pulses are carefully recorded, providing baseline data in advance of the coming hibernation season. Each collar emits a radio signal on a unique frequency, so each radio frequency corresponds to a different individual ground squirrel. The number of pulses emitted uh, corresponds to the skin temperature of the animal. Skin temperature corresponds very closely to core body temperature. So these radio collars are emitting a constant stream of data from each animal that they're attached to. This constant stream of data will reveal how successfully the squirrels are hibernating. But with the onset of winter, monitoring by hand becomes impossible. However, with the unique access that Barcroft Station provides, Craig can record data through the entire winter. Through this data stream, Craig peers into the activities of an unseen world, monitoring the squirrel's body temperatures, enabling him to see how well, or if, they are enduring the rigors of hibernation. While Craig's study is not yet complete, his hypothesis peers into the core of how evolution works. In this case, the squirrels have faced eons of rigors in a world with only a few months of temperate weather and long, severe winters. Winters that certainly take a toll on the squirrels. Those who don't consume the right diet don't successfully hibernate and perish beneath winter's frozen mantle. And thus, over time and generations, the harsh forge of this environment selected the ability to hibernate, an ability passed on to succeeding generations, an ability that eventually became part and parcel of their species. Extreme environments are different for every living thing. For the squirrels, it is a severe and prolonged winter season. For other creatures, it may be living at the edge of their natural range, where conditions can barely support their existence. Observing creatures living in either of these extremes may tell us much about change. By observing the squirrels, Craig Frank may reveal the biochemistry responsible for an evolutionary change. Conversely, observing evolutionary changes in biochemistry may reveal the forces that cause them. At nearly 10,000 feet, in a relatively unperturbed mountain environment in the Sierras near the White Mountain Research Station, a prolific but obscure creature is the focus of research that seeks to understand the link between its evolution and changes in climate. Reminiscent of a tiny alpine ladybug, the willow beetle finds a home here, living its entire life in and among the stands of water-loving willow. 
Existing at the edge of their natural range, the beetles have compelled Nathan Rank and Elizabeth Dahlhoff to follow their life cycles for nearly two decades. The two have recently begun to look deep into the beetles' being to understand the tale they may be able to tell. This beetle belongs to a group of insects that live uh, at high latitudes in Arctic regions and in mountain regions. And when the last ice age occurred, uh, the uh, plants and animals followed the glaciers and the cold conditions to the south. When the glaciers retreated again, the insects and plants were left in places that resemble the environmental conditions in the far north. We're right now sitting at an area that's about the southernmost edge of its range. It doesn't go much further south than here. And we think that this is because the uh, climatic conditions get too extreme for it uh, any further south than Sierra Nevada. What makes it interesting to study an insect at the edge of its range like this is that as conditions change, the habitats change in a more extreme way here. And we can see that the populations come and go in response to uh, climatic fluctuations. The changes that we're seeing are not just in the size of the population or where we find the beetles, we're also seeing changes in, in the frequencies of enzymes. Uh, over time, we're seeing that certain enzymes increase in frequency, and those enzymes seem to be more adapted to extremes in climate. The enzymes that the team studies are collectively called PGI, and in combination with a protective heat shock protein, it is critical to the beetle's performance, especially during periods of temperature extremes, either hot or cold. That performance relates to how well it metabolizes sugar, metabolizes energy. And so let's say, you know, you're a marathon runner and you eat a power bar and you're next to a marathon runner who doesn't eat a power bar, well, he's going to have more energy than the guy who doesn't. And it's, it's like how well this energy gets processed is really what this enzyme's about. And where this other protein comes in, this heat shock protein comes in, is, is it protects these enzymes while the stress is going on. And so an animal that can protect its, its energy enzymes better might have more mates and leave more offspring than a beetle that can't. And that's what we're trying to test here. What we're doing in this experiment here is we have taken beetles from a single location in Bishop Creek, and we've outplanted them carefully in these bags to three different locations in the eastern Sierra that have different climatic conditions. We compare the reproduction rates of beetles, and we're looking at how well each kind of beetle can reproduce in this environment, which is one where we have more cold extremes and, and cooler temperatures and more sub-zero nights. And then we're going to look further south in the warmer locations to see how well each form does there. What we're measuring is their performance over time. And in particular, what we're interested in is their fecundity or their ability to successfully mate. So we're actually measuring a performance variable that's going to impact how many babies they leave behind. Back at the White Mountain Research Station's Owens Valley Laboratory, the group studies these performance variables under controlled conditions. Having a lab nearby to make these observations is critical to the study, as they provide further verification of field results. In the lab, beetles from the different study sites that have different climatic conditions 
are kept under controlled conditions that are comfortable to the beetles. The beetles are then subjected to a range of temperature extremes, from mild to just below their survival threshold. This stress induces the production of different levels of the protective heat shock protein. The beetle's performance is then measured. A simple test of motility is used, as their speed is directly related to their ability to produce energy, which is the function of the enzymes in question. Some are champs at the half-meter dash, and others fare less well, the theory being that those that can withstand temperature extremes have a different set of the key energy processing enzymes, along with the ability to protect those enzymes during stressful periods. It is understanding the conditions that cause changes of these enzymes and the rate at which this happens that interests not only these researchers, but many involved with the science of climate change. Why? These changes in the frequencies of the enzymes really represent a, a process of evolution. We're watching the populations evolve. You can see changes uh, in the frequencies of these enzymes happening over just one or two or three years. Uh, and that's a, a pretty short time period to, to see an evolutionary change occur, but it's, it's what we're seeing. And the, the evolutionary changes that we're seeing are an even more sensitive indicator of the climate changes than just whether or not a population is there or not. This ephemeral creature may have much to tell us because climate change is written indelibly in its genes. Thus, these tiny changes in a tiny beetle may forebode much more dramatic ones. The most dramatic change of all, extinction, faces another survivor from the Pleistocene, the Sierra Nevada bighorn sheep. As an endangered species, their existence is tenuous. With the intent of preserving and protecting, biologist John Weyhausen has been working with them for over three decades. Tracking, locating, and identifying nearly every remaining individual. He has also become a genetic sleuth as he monitors their lives and seasonal movements. Many years of hard work seem to be holding extinction at bay. But at the same time, it has also raised compelling questions about the true nature of the change that threatens the existence of these ancient Sierra natives. About a half a million years ago or somewhat more, sheep crossed the Bering Land Bridge to North America and were the progenitors of our North American sheep. And, and there, in the last glaciation, they were separated into two populations, the doll sheep and the bighorn sheep in the southern part. The Sierra bighorn sheep is a unique subspecies, distinct from the Rocky Mountain and desert bighorns. It now clings to existence here in the Sierras, its numbers plummeting during the last century. We started out with something in the neighborhood of 17 or more herds of sheep scattered along the Sierra Nevada from Sonora Pass south. 
And by the 1970s, we were down to three. Why did we go from 17 plus to three? I would say probably the major factor has been domestic sheep. If you have domestic sheep, contact bighorn sheep, and these are healthy domestic sheep, the bighorn will come down with fatal pneumonia. So in a sense, we're lucky we have any left. We've had die-off after die-off starting in the 1860s, and that's what's brought us down in the 1970s to just three populations. Although control of the domestic sheep population has diminished the threat of disease, it has taken its toll. We dropped to a low point in the Sierra in 1995 of about 100 sheep left total. A decade before that, we had over 300, which is what stimulated some of us to start asking questions about genetic diversity because the few population we had left then collapsed to very low numbers. As populations get smaller, you basically have the equivalent of individuals breeding with closer and closer relatives. It becomes an inbreeding problem. Their resistance to disease will go down. Various things will emerge as problems, and then it'll affect the population demographically in terms of the survivorship, the reproductive output, and so on, and it will just help the population spiral down faster toward extinction. But now John has a new tool to find if and where this downward spiral is happening among the sheep populations. He has become a genetic sleuth. The process starts with a surprisingly simple procedure, collecting sheep droppings, or pellets. These can come from a sheep he is observing, a trail, a sheep bed, or wherever they may be found. The samples are recorded and taken back to the Owens Valley Laboratory, where the genetic sleuthing begins. In the lab, John starts by carefully scraping the outside of the pellets. This yields the freshest, most intact cells discarded from the gut of each individual animal, cells that contain the animal's unique DNA. John then processes the samples for the genotyping procedure. First, he uses PCR, or polymerase chain reaction, which makes many copies of the DNA that he is interested in. After completing the PCR, he loads the processed samples into a sequencing machine that will reveal the genetic fingerprints. In these pearl-like strands of color is the information he seeks. Genetic markers that distinguish each animal. In this elegant genetic cascade, each marker or gene is represented by a different color. What you're looking at are genetic markers, and they come in multiple forms called alleles. And each individual has one allele from each parent. And when you combine all the different markers, you have a unique combination that distinguishes each individual and I use these markers to distinguish individuals that way and in this case you can see the two alleles here's an individual that has only one of them and here's an individual that has both I also use them to measure levels of genetic diversity within populations by combining all the individuals sampled this genetic detective work also reaches back in time 
By extracting DNA from little pieces of dried tissue on skulls collected in the 1980s and even earlier, the current genetic diversity can be compared with what it was at least 20 years ago or more. This genetic sleuthing has allowed the management and recovery effort to make huge strides towards saving the endangered sheep. What's particularly important for me having a now a, a rather complete genetics lab right there at White Mountain Research Station is that I can take samples from the field, go fairly directly into the lab and answer some questions I have. Rather than waiting, let's say, years to the, till we get the genetic data from the labs, now I can answer the question right now. John Muir had a fascination with these sheep. He described them as the bravest of the, all the Sierra Mountaineers. And in some ways they're a symbol of sort of the ruggedness and the rugged character of these mountains. The future of this animal, the success of this animal, is ultimately to get them back to most of the, or all of their native range. And certainly the science in this case has made a huge difference in where we have come already with this animal. And so it puts us a big step away from extinction and our vulnerability is much lower and it buys us some very good time in order to effect some very good management on this animal and not be desperate in a sense. John's genetic sleuthing has helped to avoid a desperate situation. But in the course of this effort, he has been forced to consider a compelling question about the true nature of the changes that threaten the sheep. The question starts with the animals that surround the sheep. Deer are the first element, as they inhabit an important part of the sheep's habitat, their winter ranges. The sheep in their natural history would spend the warmer seasons of the year up high and then would come down in the winter and feed along the base of the mountains in these so-called winter ranges. And they were very important to the sheep. They gained a lot of nutrition off those winter ranges. The problem is not that the deer compete with sheep for the winter range. The problem is the second element. The deer are the main prey of mountain lions. And as John found, this factor had a devastating effect on the sheep. We started seeing very high mountain lion predation levels in the 1980s and watched the sheep in the Sierra start avoiding winter ranges where this predation was happening. And in the late 80s, I watched as the sheep basically quit using those winter ranges and started living year-round at the tops of the mountains. And we watched the populations drop to rather low numbers. These are ecosystem changes that have come about, and just why they've happened is not entirely clear, but it could very well have to do with manipulations that modern humans have done in these ecosystems. While the predator problem is now controlled by intervention, the sheep have changed the eons-old patterns of their natural history. What has changed that brought deer and mountain lions into the sheep's historical ranges? What is different in this ecosystem? To answer this question, we must understand what this ecosystem was like in the past. But how do we look back in time? And what do we find? Since the 1970s, 
Archaeologist Robert Bettinger has literally dug into the human past in the White Mountains, attempting to understand the spread of culture in Western North America. From his many field studies based at the station, he has recovered evidence of what the ancient hunter-gatherers took from this environment for food and raw materials. This allows him to reconstruct the history of this ecosystem and provide biologists and ecologists a look into the past. Amidst the sagebrush steppe near the Crooked Creek facility, Robert and a group of students explored the faint remnants of an ancient highland hunting camp and paused to reflect on how the lives of those who once lived here tell us about what this ecosystem was once like and how it has changed. It is widely uh, perceived in the public, I think, that, that hunting, first of all, is the most important thing that Native Americans do. And second, when the hunting is done, that it's primarily targeted at deer. And what we really see uh, in these villages here in the highlands is first that gathering's just as important, and second, that deer aren't involved at all. And uh, uh, the real critical prey species up here, which dominates almost to the exclusion of all other large animals in the archaeological record, is, is, is the mountain sheep. And it was so uh, from the very beginning of the record uh, right up until what we call the historic period when, when Euro-Americans come into eastern California. So the reasonable question to ask is, is what, what's the difference? The environment that they relied on, this alpine environment, changed from one that favored mountain sheep in the past, which was grass, to, uh, to sagebrush. And look where we are in the middle of a sagebrush meadow, and which is perfectly suited to deer, ideal for deer, but absolutely unsuited to uh, mountain sheep. So what would it look like if, if, if you came up here 250 years ago um, and the answer is that it, it wouldn't look like what we see today at all. Instead of sagebrush, what we would see is, is rolling fields of grass. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be continuous grass. It wouldn't look like, the, it wouldn't like Kansas, but it's bunch grasses, and it would be all over here, taller and shorter and, and pretty much continuous. But what could have caused such a dramatic change? A change that saw one ecosystem of plants entirely replaced by another. Was it drastic climate change, an invasive disease, or plague of insects? It was something more devastating. In a word, it's grazing. It's grazing animals. It's cows um, and sheep that come up here and take the really prime uh, pasture uh, that the mountain sheep had depended on, the, the herbs, the grasses that were here, uh, and strip those off uh, and caused the, the sagebrush to, to flourish in, the, in their stead and basically transformed a grassland to a, sagebrush, to a sagebrush steppe. And it stretches from Owens Valley all the way east to the far rim of the Great Basin. It's a, it's a change we see everywhere in the mountain ranges of the Great Basin where the, sh the grazing by sheep removes grass, causes a replacement of, of bighorn sheep by deer. Mountain lions are really primarily dependent on deer. Without deer, no mountain lions. They are also a part of this introduction, deer and, uh, and mountain lions together, which are making a change in the environment. With domestic livestock eating their way through the landscape, 
a cascade of changes has transformed this ecosystem forever. Thus, we will never again see herds of bighorn dominating the mountains that for untold millennia have been their home. Their forage is gone, and predators have been invited into their range. They will forever cling to existence, while we must face the task of protecting them. It is the ability to look back in time that reveals the true scope of change affecting the Sierra Bighorns. And being able to look back in time also allows science to calibrate the meter and pace of change. So we can perhaps understand what is natural and when unnatural forces have caused that pace to go awry. Another inhabitant of these mountains, the bristlecone pine, is helping science to understand that pace and has many stories to tell. For years, Phil Rundle has worked in the highest realms where trees can grow, and he has investigated what the bristlecones can tell us. Well, bristlecones are the oldest living thing in the world today, that the oldest bristlecone pines are in excess of 4,800 years. That means some of these trees were alive when the pharaohs were just beginning to build the pyramids in ancient Egypt. And with their tree rings, they have a record of the climate over that period of time. They also can tell us an awful lot about adaptation to stress. Plants have to have carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is very limited at these kinds of elevations. And so plants have to have physiological mechanisms to adapt to these low levels of carbon dioxide. To do that, they've adapted large amounts of photosynthetic enzymes in their needles. And these photosynthetic enzymes are better able to fix the carbon dioxide. And that seems to be a very important part of their adaptation to these conditions. Even the humble soil they grow in plays a significant role in the adaptations of the bristlecone. Here, the rock type is dolomite. Dolomites are very whitish in color. They, they have different kinds of nutrient characteristics, and the important part of that is they're very low in available nutrients. And if you just look around in these bristlecone pine stands, you'll see that virtually no other woody species grow in these stands. Sagebrush won't grow here. Limber pine won't grow here. None of the shrub species that are common on the granites or on the shales will grow in these areas. One clue that why bristlecone is able to survive in these areas is that it retains its needles for an incredibly long period of time. Typical pines keep needles for only five or six years. The limber pines will keep them for eight to ten years. But bristlecone has a mechanism we don't understand yet to be able to allow these old growth needles to survive, photosynthesize for 30 and 40 years, far longer than any other plant species in the world. The skies above also conspire to test the bristle cones. Here, most of the precipitation, which is not very much, falls as winter snow. And so these trees, at a time of the year when it's very cold, very difficult to grow, that's when water is much more available. And by late summer, when temperatures are still warm, the soils are extremely dry. But the bristlecone pines, in order to survive, it really is important that they be able to grow in these late summer conditions despite the drought that exists, a drought that's much more severe than in other kinds of mountain ranges in the world. Able to not only survive, but thrive in persistent drought, in the poorest soil, in chronically cool conditions, the bristlecone pines tell us something from whence they came. 
They carry adaptations from a time when great ice sheets covered the earth, when winters were long and harsh and summers cool, adaptations that allow them to thrive in the White Mountains today. But these adaptations not only tell the past, they may foretell our future. On a hillside high above treeline, Phil explains what we can learn from an ancient grove of bristlecones that once lived here. Where we're sitting now is about well over 500 feet above the upper limit of the, of the bristlecone zone below us. We're seeing a bunch of dead standing trees and, and down logs. When ecologists first came into this area in the late 1950s to look at, at some of the ecological relationships of bristlecone pine, they assumed these were just trees that had died in fairly recent years. They were still here because they hadn't decomposed yet and made no special note of them. But once people brought carbon dating techniques and carbon dated these logs, to their great amazement, they discovered that these trees above the existing tree line died about 4,000 years ago. And we know now from ge a variety of geological evidence that four to 8,000 years ago, several thousand years after the end of the last ice age, that there was a warmer period, warmer than it is today. It's called the altothermal period. And during that time, under warmer global conditions, tree lines moved up to higher areas. And so in this particular zone, we know now that the tree line moved up almost a thousand feet in the White Mountains as it did in the Sierra Nevada under these warmer conditions. And so today, we're seeing dead trees that all died at least 4,000 years ago in this zone that's now well above the, the normal tolerance range for bristlecone pines. Something else interesting about this area is that if you look at these zones with the dead trees, well above the, the real tree line of the existing large trees, what we're seeing are seedlings and small saplings that have come into this area in the last 50 to 100 years. So we're seeing a gradual recolonization of this zone, which suggests that there have been some warmer conditions, at least locally, here in the White Mountains. We don't really know why these young trees are recolonizing this area where they once occurred, but something has been happening here that's very exciting, that these trees are moving back into an area where they once occurred, were eliminated, and are now recolonizing again. So bristlecones can tell us an incredible amount about the past, but it's also seeing what's happening dynamically here. Bristlecone pines are going to be telling us something about the future as well. We will someday know what these grizzled Methuselahs may tell us about the future, because these survivors from a long-lost epoch are likely to endure. And because here in the realm of the bristlecone, science has made a place, the White Mountain Research Station. It is a place to come and observe, and to learn the tales that life in this land can tell from the valley floor to the summit of White Peak. Tales of change, evolution, and adaptation. Tales of the past and of what the future may hold. Found only here in the shadow of White Mountain. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.